to Line Upon Line Q&A, where we take a look at the Bible passage that's being taught at Dave Malek to try and further understand some of the issues that have been raised, the questions people have when they hear these verses taught, perhaps from a perspective that they've never really heard before or understood. And Yaakov joins me again. Good morning, Yaakov. Good morning. Psalm 51. I must admit, when it comes to uh, a passage to choose to begin a year, I remember uh, many years ago as a pastor starting the year by studying the book of Job and thinking that that was a bit of a buzzkill to start a new year. <laughs> but uh, Psalm 51 may be an even more challenging choice. Yeah, and, and there's a reason for it. We, uh, as leaders of our community each year, we pray before we begin the year and we seek God as to what uh, we believe He is giving us as a theme. And the the consistent word that we kept getting this year was a pure heart. And so that had obvious uh, connections and to this specific psalm, which is why we began with it. Well, Charles Spurgeon called it the Sinner's Guide. Athanasius wanted his disciples to recite this chapter every night before bed. And yet for me, my obvious question is, why does this psalm even exist? Because for most of us, if we got caught out in a sin, the last thing we'd want to do is write a song about it. Yeah, and I think that's a fantastic um, question to ask Aaron, because I agree with you. The last thing I want to do is to write a song about it. But but more than that, what what Malik David does is he actually gives the psalm to the director of music worship. So he's not only making these confessions as a private contemplation or writing the song for personal use. He's actually giving it to the director of music so that his sin is going to be exposed before the entire nation of Israel. It's an incredible step of humility and vulnerability to allow that to happen. I uh, suppose the obvious question for many of us is, is it being suggested that all of us need to lay our sins bare before the world? Oh, and that's another great question, and I think uh, there's an important distinction to be made. No, it's not teaching that we should lay all our sins before the world. In David's case, he is the king that God has chosen to rule over his chosen people, Israel. And as the head of the people of Israel, he bears greater responsibility and therefore is required to make sure that the effects of his sin over the nation are addressed and that's more in line with if we read the Habrit HaChadashah, the New Testament scripture it's more in line with this idea, not many of you should desire to be teachers for those who teach will face greater judgment and that's really what's happening here, so great question and no, it doesn't mean that every believer needs to parade their sin confessions before the whole body of believers Well that's a great sigh of relief I'm sure for many of us, uh, because it doesn't sound like a fun day at the office. I, I want to start looking at some of the questions that the psalm brings up, and there's in particular one verse about being born guilty. This idea that uh, in theological terms is dubbed original sin, this idea that human beings are somehow born in a kind of faulty state. Now, I know a lot of people, both inside the Christian community and outside, struggle with this idea. Partly, it seems very unjust. Why would God allow people to be born programmed for sin and then hold them 
accountable for sins they couldn't help but commit anyway because after all they were born guilty so they come up with these kind of uh, deep questions about the nature of God uh, is it just and fair for him to allow this to happen and what does it even really mean yeah look this is a great question I don't think we've got time to address it properly in the time we've got uh, for this Q&A but what I would say is this is that one of the big errors made in interpreting that part of the psalm that where David says you know I was born in sin things like this in sin my mother conceived me it's very important to understand that he is not saying that his mother and father committed a sin act to conceive him you know because that's the first place people go to what is being well we know that his mother and father didn't they were a righteous couple he came at the end of the litter so they had already been married and had several children this their sex act to produce him was not a sinful one it was done in godly marriage we know this for a fact so really what he's saying is i was born into a world that is sin affected so he's not this this notion of original sin and therefore um you know this innate idea that we are born sinners is not technically correct what the scripture says is is that all have sinned so it's not that we were born sinners it's that we were born into a sin affected world and that all of us chose to sin and therefore all of us need redemption and there's a subtle difference there that i think helps people affirm that god is just but also doesn't let us off the hook because god also says that every inclination of man's soul is toward evil so um, both those things we have to hold in tension but i do think it's a great question to bring up and it's important to understand david is saying i was born into a sin affected world in a sin affected world my mother and father produced me he is not saying my mother and father sinned by producing me there's some wonderful imagery uh, in this psalm, particularly the use of hyssop, which of course reminds the Jewish person of Passover and the blood being uh, applied to the doorpost. And of course, for the Christian, that reminds us of the blood being applied to the cross itself when Jesus hangs there for the sin of humanity. The question I have, and, and many I think do, is that because the Christian uh, worldview is that there is no possibility in a sense of forgiveness or being made pure without Jesus mm. how does David have a hope so many years before Christ would live that he could even be made pure uh, by God yep so that's another awesome question which is why you're the guy doing this I guess uh, in actual fact David understands the work of the King Messiah a thousand years before the birth of the King Messiah. And I say this because I say this because every use of hyssop for cleansing in the Tanakh is a prefigure of the cleansing act of the King Messiah. You mentioned Passover. We we know from the New Testament Messiah is our Passover lamb. So he directly connects us to the Messiah there. The cleansing of the leper from his impurity is also a figure of the Messiah. The leper has been outcast and the whole process of the hyssop being used in cleansing the leper brings him from being an outcast into reconciliation not only with the community 
community, but with God himself and the Mishkan worship. And then we have the hyssop that cleanses from the touch of death. Again, a metaphor or a figure, if you like, for redemption from what we rightly deserve, death. So, so really, David is very clued up, just like when he prophesies, the Lord said to my Lord, he has met the King Messiah Yeshua in some transcendent, resurrected way a thousand years before Yeshua was born into time and space. Well, it just dawns on me sitting here that we're further away from the cross than David was. <laughs> So if our faith can reach back 2,000 years, is it true that his faith can reach forward 1,000? That's an incredibly insightful thing to say. In terms of the relationship, though, that those living before Jesus have with God, we read verses like when David says, you know, take not your spirit from me. This uh, great concern that David has, does my sin mean that God will leave me, depart from me? And again, Christians definitely tie the idea of their salvation to the work of the spirit, that it's kind of the deposit, the promise of things to come. But it's kind of unclear to some of us, what's the relationship of the Holy Spirit, in a sense, to the Old Testament saints, and and what is this concern that David has? Yeah, and that's another great question because it leads to a lot of what I would call uh, apostate theologies, um, the misuse of this psalm, and the verse that you're referring to, which in the in the English or Christian numbering system is verse 11. Take not thy Holy Spirit from me is really read by the modern English reader as don't take the Holy Spirit from me. And so we add the sort of um, tense to it that infers that it's possible for the Holy Spirit to be taken. But really the Hebrew says al, which is a way of saying not, never, won't. So if we're going to say don't, we might just as easily say won't. And so really, if we understand the text in in context with the rest of the redemptive narrative of the psalm, it's not saying, don't take your Holy Spirit from me. It's saying, you won't take your Holy Spirit from me. And that totally changes our understanding, not only of our own security and salvation, but of the fact that David understood this. So this this false notion that our believers before Messiah could lose their salvation is also wrong. That the Holy Spirit might not be continually present with them is also wrong because David clearly understood otherwise. Well, of course, if that were true, then what's really being said is that sin is more powerful than the cross. If the lie that you can lose the Holy Spirit if we're true, then you're absolutely right. We're saying sin is more powerful than the cross. More than that, we're saying Yeshua is incapable of the strength to keep us saved. Not to mention we say saved. Saved from what? Saved from eternal damnation. It's not like being saved from a fire in the temporal world where you could go back to the fire if you're an idiot. It's being saved past tense from eternal damnation. There's no going back to that because we're already living in eternity. 
It's a powerful, powerful security that uh, many people need to hear. It does make me wonder, though, when I read the verse, even if it were a concern of David that it could happen, it reminds me of the times where Christians will say, after reading this verse, that many will say, I I did this in your name, I did that in your name, and Jesus will say, depart from me because I I never knew you. That Usually the people who are concerned about that verse shouldn't be because their awareness of it is actually a reminder that the Spirit is living in them in the same way with David if there were a concern in him even that would be a source of assurance that uh, that God is obviously at work in his heart that he would not want that to happen yes well said that's absolutely right so we've got this uh, this issue of, in a sense, eternal security is not what is, is being discussed. Mm. I would like to further press into, though, what the work of the Spirit is in the life of the Old Testament saint. Again, New Testament believers are very interested in things like the gifts of the Spirit uh, the and, and the miracles and the power of God. What does it even mean for the Old Testament saint to say that God's Spirit is with them? Yeah, and it's another great question, and uh, I would say again that just as uh, the rabbi I trained under, Mishael, would say is that show me anything in the Habwit HaChadashah, the New Testament, and I'll show it to you in the Tanakh, in what Christians call the Old Testament. And so we talk about gifts of the Holy Spirit. The gifts of the Holy Spirit were manifested long before even this conversation with David. The gifts of the Holy Spirit, in a certain sense, and maybe not the same, but in in a similar way, were poured out on Bezalel, the the man who is gifted by the Holy Spirit to be an artisan of things that were beyond his natural capability. And so he makes those components for the Mishkan, the tent of meeting. And the scripture is very clear that it is not a skill that he has practiced or developed, but it is it is a skill that God imparts to him by the war HaKodesh. Um, that's the gifts. With regard to the Holy Spirit being present, David, we admit, numbed himself to the conviction of God for several months before Natan turned up to rebuke him. However, in that process, he was clearly grieving the Holy Spirit in himself. We understand that by the psalm he wrote directly after this rebuke from Natan. He had felt the grief of the Holy Spirit in him for that entire time. And so, look, to me, that's no different than a conversation about a modern believer. I experienced that myself as a modern believer. When David says that his, his sin is before him, that's not a recommendation, is it, for, for us to keep our sin before us constantly, because that does not live, uh, lead to a joy-filled life. Uh, clearly, David, in a sense, is tormented by his sin. Yeah, well said. And that's, um, as I've just spoken of, the grief of the Holy Spirit. That tells us that David was aware of the grief that he had caused the Holy Spirit in him. And as a result, as a godly man, he wanted that grief to direct him toward God, not to turn him away from God. And so what we conclude is that the grief of the Holy Spirit purposes our sanctification. Well, when it comes to that forgiveness, again, there's distinction between the Old and New Testament where Christians look 
solely at the cross. David has in mind that there's some work of forgiveness occurring on the altar, that somehow the death of animals might have something to do with this forgiveness. Of course, again, that, that hyssop being used to wipe blood. It seems a bit nasty, a bit crude, a bit ugly for us modern people to think that somehow blood and forgiveness go together. Yep, and I understand why that might seem nasty to modern people. The reality is that God from the beginning says that he places the blood on the altar for the remission of sin. Now, what that really means in hindsight is that that blood is a symbol of the need for death to be addressed through death. And we know that happens through the King Messiah, Yeshua. In a temporal sense, that happened with the blood of animals. However, as we also know, within seconds or moments of having brought that sacrifice, any one of us as men could have lusted after the nearest Israeli daughter and uh, committed a sin so that we were back to where we began. So really what what David's doing is he is once again pointing us to the reality that sin brings death. And that's really what these sacrifices show us, that sin brings death, that when we identify with the animal that dies on our behalf, we are saying that that animal is taking upon itself our rightful punishment. And so he is therefore again pointing to the King Messiah, who I am certain based on the scriptures we have that record what David said and the things he did. A Messiah that I'm certain David beheld a thousand years before he entered time and space because the resurrected Messiah is transcendent, unbound by time and space. David, for most of us, is this incredible example of a, of a passionate worshipper, a man after God's own heart, and yet here he is also a man able to do the most despicable things. And yes. many of us can't reconcile that. How could it be that a godly man would do ungodly things? But in so many ways, that, that almost seems to be the theme of the Bible. Yes, and, and that is right. And it's interesting to note that when David is talked about in the past tense afterward in Scripture, he is talked about firstly as a man after God's own heart. So his sin isn't brought up first. The fact that he's a man after God's own heart is brought up. And then it says, in all his ways he kept Torah except in the instance of his sin with Bathsheba, which also infers the sin of plotting the murder of Uriah. And, and so it's shown that this heinous sin was an exception in David's life, but more than that, that what this is really about, as you rightly observe, is not so much about the idea that a man after God's own heart would be perfect in this sin-affected world. That's clearly not the case. But what it's really about is the fact that righteousness, that nobility, that character are not only proved in our right actions, it is also proved in the way we repent of our wrong actions. And really, a man who is not after God's own heart simply doesn't repent. 
So, so it's a wonderful encouragement to you and I, because once again, it goes back to what you said earlier, that if we're asking these questions, it's evidence of the Spirit of God in us. And I find great comfort in that. Do you agree with Athanasius that uh, disciples should read this chapter every night before bed? I mean, how do we use this in a life-giving way? <laughs> every night before bed. Well, I'm sure he was a lovely man. I don't know him personally. I, I couldn't. Uh, look, every night before bed may be missing the point. I think there, there's context, as we've discussed, for this scripture that is beyond the context of our modern society. But there are also principles there that teach us some really great processes. So perhaps rather than reading it every night before bed, what we might do is apply some of the principles that are there. The principle of first, in all things, turning to God. The principle of second, acknowledging that only God can save me. Third, confessing my sin and owning up to my own guilt and not trying to make excuses for what happened, like, well, that day I hadn't had much sleep or I'd had a tough week, but just saying, I'm guilty. And then next, sharing our redemption, the redemption that we receive with other people. Part of our witness to other people of the gospel is saying, hey, I did this, this and this, and I met a God who's taken away the guilt that comes with that, who's redeemed me and promised me that I'm secure in him for eternity. And and those kind of real authentic uh, ways of sharing the gospel are some of the most effective. And then finally, of course, we praise God for all that he's done. And we don't just do it individually. We realize that, in fact, in one way, all of our sin affects first God and also the community. And so we praise God with the community in repentance. And we walk together as a community that admits we are all guilty and we all need to repent individually and corporately. That way, I mean, even if we were to publicly confess our sin, then we should all be doing it. So, so no one should be afraid of, oh, I'm the only one who's going to have something to bring forward. The reality is we all have something.